Thank you, everyone. I wish I brought my mom with me uh, to hear all those accolades here. <laughs> she would be pretty pumped. Um, <laughs> it's truly, truly, truly an honor to be here uh, for, uh, for Paul. Um, so um, he's uh, just meant so much to me. I knew I was going to do that. So uh, I have some jokes that in here. But um, you know, he's been a role model for me and many others in this room. Uh, he, uh, you know, beyond his professional successes, his, um, his brilliance, uh, he's just kind, compassionate, um, and always been, made time for us. Um, so I also want to thank Sheila for sharing Paul with us. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of sacrifices, long days that he worked here. Uh, but he put his heart uh, here in, at this institution and for all of us here. Um, I also want to um, uh, acknowledge that um, he always made time uh, to meet with us, uh, to meet with me personally, my wife. Uh, I remember when I was an intern, I um, had this crazy research idea, um, and he actually like, made time to like, take me to friendlies to chat about it, which I can't believe still did, did that. Um, uh, so I just want to say thank you to Paul for being Paul. Um, and, uh, in, and like Paul said, this is pretty unexpected for me to be here. If you, um, you know, I didn't have the most successes during residency, I had some struggles for sure. Um, uh, and um, I usually be, be half asleep in grand rounds, like in the back row, um, paying attention here, someone paying attention here. So being here uh, for this event is really, really special. Um, you know, I'd say that it's kind of unexpected. It is unexpected for me. Uh, so I'll make it a sports metaphor, sports analogy. It's as unexpected as my beloved Patriots coming back from 25 points down in the third quarter to win their fifth Super Bowl, uh, which is pretty incredible. I'm going to actually show a picture of my family after the game because I gave a grand rounds in uh, Florida and show this picture and then someone yelled was it deflated balls or not and we had it back and forth and threw my whole grand, grand rounds off so I figured having my kids up there may save me here a little bit. Um, but I, I do want to acknowledge, and I, I appreciate what uh, Dr. Dorkin said about me, you know, I do want to acknowledge that um, uh, you know, for those students, residents, uh, fellows, junior faculty who uh, you know, feel like they're struggling. Um, uh, you know, you're not alone in that endeavor. Um, and for me, what, what helped me was um, uh, growing a little bit, getting more confidence in myself, um, being around uh, mentors who believed in me, um, um, and then also just kind of realizing that some of those qualities, um, uh, which um, maybe weaknesses, perceived as weaknesses as a, as a resident, are actually become strengths of mine as a faculty member. Um, and so that's been really, really wonderful. Uh, but then I realized also, so it's been 15 years since I graduated from uh, residency, and uh, so the timing is perfect. It's actually the 15th year anniversary of the Patriots winning their first Super Bowl. <laughs> I was actually on call in, <laughs> on, and, uh, in, at CCMC and had promised one of my friends uh, to cover me for a few hours so I can go watch the game in isolation uh, in solitary uh, at my wife's uh, house. So um, Eric Cohen stepped in for me. He, he didn't think he would have to do that for me, but he did, and lo and behold, we won. So there's some great symmetry here. It's also, by the way, my 15th year wedding anniversary, which we celebrated a couple years ago. One of the best things I did during residency was getting married in my last block of residency and going on honeymoon and coming back for graduation. 
so I'm not going to go through this completely. So went from a Yukon Husky to a Butte Terrier, or I was thinking CCMC to BMC. Um, and Paul's kind of went through everything that I've done. Uh, and uh, my two dollars are seven and ten. That's probably the biggest accomplishment I've made since I've left here. Uh, so I have no relevant commercial uh, relationships or, uh, to disclose. Um, I do want to acknowledge that this is going to be a little more personal than um, typical Grand Rounds, and so I'm going to sprinkle some personal anecdotes here and there throughout my talk. Uh, so learning objectives are for you to understand the impact of socioeconomic factors as determinants of health, uh, to recognize barriers for addressing family social needs in pediatrics, and to become aware of innovative pediatric primary care models that address low-income families' material needs. So I think everyone here in this room knows that social determinants impacts health, but what does social determinants mean? It's like one of those terms that people kind of throw around all the time. And um, for me, the best definition that I like, I like to use is written by uh, Sir Michael Marmot, who's really a leader in this field, who really started it in the 70s. And he defines social determinants as the circumstances in which people live and work. His classic study was a Whitehall study done in the late 70s, and basically they looked, took a cohort of um, men in the British Civil Service, over 18,000 men, and they were divided into four distinct classes. And what they found was, not surprisingly, that the lowest class had almost four times higher uh, coronary heart disease mortality rate than the highest class. But what they also found was during those four uh, categories that there was an inverse gradient. So the lowest class had the highest mortality rate, followed subsequently by the second lowest class, and, on, uh, and onward and onward. And what they found was the grade of employment was the strongest predictor of death, much more than major coronary heart disease risk factors we think about smoking, obesity, hypertension. And as the AP um, noted in their policy statement last year, poverty is a key social determinant of health and contributor to child health disparities. Uh, studies have shown that growing up in poverty has detrimental consequences on pretty much everything you can think of. So birth outcomes, infant mortality, poor children of higher rates, low birth weight as well. Child health, health outcomes, choose anything. Asthma, obesity, otitis media, um, eczema. Uh, poor children have higher rates. Behavior and development, so higher rates of ADHD and uh, higher rates of developmental uh, delays, along as, as well as poor school achievement, uh, higher rates of high school dropout. And the consequence of childhood poverty isn't just isolated into childhood, it kind of carries on throughout the life course. So childhood poverty is associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease, risk of stroke, and early mortality even for those children who escaped poverty as an adult. Simply stated, poor children experience worse health across their life course, really from cradle to grave. So how is this possible? How is it possible that a child who grows up poor pretty much impacts their whole um, uh, health from pretty much any outcome and really from cradle to grave, some from, um, uh, from childhood to adulthood? And people talked about possible life course mechanisms. No one really knows for sure, but these are some hypotheses. One is that there's cumulative exposure to stressful experiences, which causes a breakdown of physiological steady state, so kind of breaking down the allostatic load. Others have thought that there's biological embedding disease. Experiences are programmed into the structure and functioning of biological systems. Um, and finally, others think about uh, the sense of time periods, especially as, as uh, Dr. Orkin mentioned, the developing brain in the first uh, three years of life, which is receptive to environmental signals, 
which changes behavioral responses. So specific aspects of the um, frontal cortex involve executive functioning as well as a um, temporal lobe involved with memory and language uh, uh, cognition. And then I'll say also, not um, surprisingly, but unfortunately, that what we're talking about isn't something as a topic, a research topic. Unfortunately, child poverty is everywhere. So one in five children in, in the U.S. live in poverty. In the U.S., children are the poorest segment of the population. And I remember something that Dr. Z and I think Dr. Workman had mentioned on my interview day was that, um, I'm sure it probably holds true now, right? Connecticut is the richest state in the union, but has three of the uh, poorest uh, cities uh, in the U.S. Uh, so we've always kind of thought of it as an urban issue, but suburbs are growing uh, the fastest uh, with higher rates of poverty than cities are. And like I mentioned before, about 20% of children live below the federal poverty level. So, you know, for that, uh, for a family of four, it's about $24,000. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, that's not enough money to really make uh, ends meet. And so research suggests that income uh, is required at least twice of that, so 200% of the federal poverty level is needed to try to make uh, those ends meet. So about $40,000 for a family of four, and people use that as a definition of low income. So using that definition, currently 42% of children, or almost 31 million children in the U.S. are low income. Another way to capture that is that um, 51% of children in the U.S. are on public insurance, either Medicaid or CHIP. And as Dr. Br uh, Bernard Dreyer, who is a former AAP president, um, so eloquently kind of states, uh, poverty is one of the most significant non-communicable diseases children are suffering from today. So really think about poverty as a disease. And so I'm going to um, kind of change the rest of my uh, talk to kind of focusing on addressing social determinants of health and thinking about how have we done that in the past in pediatrics, what's the current state of that, and then what are some future steps that we, we are going to think about. This is a word cloud from um, the Siren Research Network, um, which is uh, started by Laura Gottlieb at UCSF, which I'm a member of. And I'd say, you know, for most of the 20th century, social determinants was really not in the medical realm, it was really kind of a focus of public health. Uh, if you look at the 10 greatest uh, public health achievements uh, per the CDC, many impact children, immunizations, motor vehicle safety, um, safer, healthier foods, fluorination of drinking water, tobacco, um, and family planning. But I'd say that pediatrics has always kind of been an outlier in this compared to other specialties. Uh, it's kind of been in our DNA to address the social context of, uh, of uh, the lives that children are living, that live in. Uh, the social circumstances in which children live, on, live in. Um, and that's really started since the inception of our field of pediatrics. So many consider Dr. Abraham Jacoby to be the father of pediatrics. He uh, was motivated by issues of social justice. He fought to ensure clean water and decent housing for poor urban children. And he stated it's not enough to work at an individual bedside at the hospital. So really from our inception, we've embraced this. And then in the 1970s, there was this acknowledgement about the new morbidity, that there's a shift in the understanding of what impacts the health of children and families. It was no longer infectious diseases like polio and measles and mumps. It was becoming more chronic conditions like asthma and obesity, along with developmental and behavioral issues were kind of rising more to the forefront. And they also acknowledged that the social determinants of health was also a key determinant of child health.
And it's actually in our um, uh, well child care guidelines for health supervision visits. So Bright Features, their guidelines came out in 1994. Uh, since its inception, they always stressed the importance of viewing the child in the context of the family and community. In their children's health charter, their, one of their guiding principles was that every child and adolescent deserves satisfactory housing, good nutrition, a quality education, an adequate family income, a supportive social network, and access to community resources. They state that the charter states unequivocally the explicit connection between a wide range of social determinants and the health of children and youth. So this is something over 20 years ago that was written in our Wild Child Care Visit Guidelines. Something I think we should be very proud of. And so when we think about social determinants, what do we do as pediatricians uh, in the past? I'd say it's kind of like this. We would talk to families. We would try to um, you know, understand the context of our families and what they're living in and the, the challenges that they're facing. I particularly like this picture because there's no computer involved. There's no EMR involved here. You can actually talk face-to-face -face with a, with a uh, family um, and take notes. Uh, but studies had suggested that few pediatricians routinely ask about family, social, and psychosocial problems. So these are some stats from various studies. So one study found that over half of um, parents reported speaking or talking about household smoking with a pediatrician. About a quarter spoke uh, about substance abuse with a pediatrician. One in ten for financial difficulties and less than 10% for intimate partner violence and depression. So this is one of my first uh, studies during fellowship. Um, and uh, we just asked residents point blank, um, you know, how often do you screen for these needs? And we defined routinely asking about these needs occurring at three quarters of wild child care visits, or over 75%. And you can see that less than 20% of the time, residents uh, screened or asked about housing problems, child care, education, employment, and food security. And I have to say, that fits exactly what I used to do as a resident as well. So uh, recently, uh, we used those questions in the AAP uh, Fellow Survey to kind of get a more national representative data on this. And attendings uh, and faculty members throughout the US um, were surveyed. And you know, about 40% of um, pediatricians uh, screen or ask about childcare. But subsequently, you know, only one in five still ask about food security, housing security, and even less about utilities. So our resident data kind of mirrors in many ways the, the data of general pediatricians um, uh, and subspecialists actually uh, in, uh, in the US. And it's not because I don't think it's important. So the majority of pediatricians who were screened in the AAP survey found that it was important, two-thirds, but many just don't think it's feasible and very few feel really prepared to do this, only one in five. So barriers for pediatricians. So I think probably one that we can think about the most is time. Um, you know, the average wild childcare visit in the U.S. is 18 minutes. Uh, there's only so much you can do in that short time period. Um, the second barrier I'd say is lack of professional training, which I think is a missed opportunity for many of us. So you know, I did my residency here. I loved my primary care experience, my content clinic experience, but no one, and I took care of mostly poor children from Hartford, right? But no one really told me how to ask those questions. No one, and this is many years ago, so I'm sure things have evolved. Um, but, uh, you know, no one really asked, taught me how to ask those questions, how to be in that moment, how to, you know, locate those community resources, to think about it. So, 
You know, my uh, training isn't uh, unusual in that sense. Uh, I think it's something that it's a, uh, an opportunity for, for many training pro programs to kind of address. And actually, the APA um, uh, has developed a professional training uh, program for residents on this. Uh, I think many of us think we're not sure it's effective, right? So if you're going to do something, you want to actually feel like it's making a difference. And the smoke and cessation literature suggests that even talking about that can make a difference. Uh, I think sometimes we're afraid it's going to negatively, negatively impact the therapeutic alliance. Talking about things like food and housing, uh, uh, employment, those are sometimes judgmental conversations we're having and it kind of feels kind of icky talking about this sometimes with our families. So lack of knowledge community resources, so what are you going to do if you find out about it, you know? The prevalence is high, you're going to refer everyone to a social worker, but there's only one, maybe one or two social workers in clinic, what are you going to do about that? And then reimbursement. So, you know, for, for the longest time, there hasn't been an incentive necessarily to ask about these questions because there was no direct reimbursement on this. And so I'm going to move forward to talking about the present situation uh, for addressing social determinants. And I start by saying that the, um, the AP policy statement on poverty and child health in the United States, it came out last April in 2016. And that, I think, was really a game changer in thinking about social terms of health and, and screening for it. Uh, it's really the brainchild of Bernard Dreyer who really kind of galvanized uh, the academy to really kind of tackle this issue. In their policy uh, recommendation, they uh, recommend screening for risk factors within social determinants of health during patient encounters. They recommend either using a brief written screener or verbally asking those questions uh, to family members about basic needs. And they state that as patient-centered medical homes continue to develop, care coordinators may connect families in poverty with resources. So thinking beyond just uh, the pediatrician doing it, but having a team-based model. Uh, and this policy actually got a lot of attention. Um, there were surrogates who went on uh, the speaking tour to, to talk about this. And uh, as Dr. Dreyer states, this is probably one of the policy that got the most attention uh, that the AP has ever published. Probably lasts about a day or so, <laughs> the attention, unfortunately, uh, as we kind of moved on to other important things in the US. Uh, and so for the AP, poverty and child health is still on the agenda. I couldn't download this slide for 2016, 2017, but there's actually now just uh, two pillars, and poverty and child health continues to be at the top of it, along with epigenetics as the second pillar to think about. I'd say the second thing um, that kind of brought more attention, not only in pediatrics, but also outside of pediatrics, which, to be honest, really drives these bigger conversations about reimbursement and payment reform, was a kind of a health communities model. Uh, this was a, a grant that came out from CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, for almost $160 million. And their aim was to test whether screening for health-related social needs and associate referrals and navigation and community-based services will improve quality and affordability in Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. I kind of think about this as the next holy grail for cost containment, right? So we know social determinants impacts health, worse health, worse health is um, costlier to the healthcare system. And so now if we address social determinants, we can perhaps improve health and also improve the bottom line and reduce costs. Uh, people weren't sure whether this was going to be funded or not, uh, and it actually was. So 32 grantees were just awarded uh, um, uh, the grant uh, just a couple months ago, and they've actually put their uh, screening tool uh, out there uh, for the public uh, to use. Uh, and you know, the CDC has also uh, embraced this concept as well. This is their um, health impact pyramid. 
And if you look at the factors that affect health, they suggest that the, large, the largest impact is socioeconomic factors, much more than what we typically do during the um, uh, patient encounter, counseling, education, and clinical interventions, even giving prescriptions for chronic diseases. In 2014, so another um, thing that caught a lot of attention uh, and kind of kept the momentum going for social determinants was uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, came up with their um, two doctrines on embedding social determinants health questions into the EMR. And they came up with this kind of busy uh, domains on how to do it, to embed it. Uh, and this brought some attention and some people have been working with different um, uh, EMRs like, such as EPIC to embed these in there. Um, the one thing I'll say about this, the Institute of Medicine's um, group, is that there are actually no pediatricians involved in that process. It was all adult <coughs> medicine uh, uh, colleagues who, who worked on that. So it may not be as pediatric friendly as, as we would want it to be. So I'm going to focus uh, a bunch of my time now talking about screening referral mechanisms. There are many that are starting to get developed. Uh, one is um, uh, done by Eric Fliegler called Help Steps, which is a computer-based screening tool which matches a com uh, community's uh, resources by family subcode. Um, he's actually made an app for that as well to look at it. But I'm going to um, focus my attention on um, the We Care project. Though, as uh, Paul mentioned before, this was um, my fellowship project. I'm still kind of blown away. I'm still talking about this fellowship project 10 years later. Um, one thing I had to say is that I owe being in fellowship due to Bill Zemsky. Bill's still here. Um, so, you know, I was, I was in prior practice. It was okay, but I was kind of missing being around students and residents, and I really wanted to kind of get back. So I applied for some fellowships and uh, really fell in love uh, with one of the Hopkins, at least by paper. And um, I emailed Bill, I'm like, Bill, can you, I know you did residency down there, can you just like put a good word in for me? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And then I was about to go down, I think the day before, and I was like, Bill, can you, can you do something? And, uh, <laughs> and he actually picked up the phone and talked to the fellowship director, Jan Sterwins. And because of that, I swear, that's how I got this fellowship position. And so my whole career in parts owed to Bill, another slacker as a resident. Um, and so when I had it, you know, I, I wrote something on the fellowship about wanting to do obesity research and smoke cessation counseling, but I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be around students and residents. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then I, then I got down there, got into the fellowship, and I had to do a research project because it is Hopkins after all. And um, uh, I kind of, so I was precepting clinic finally, so, you know, being around residents, I was able to kind of look at the big picture for, for once after being two years in the trenches, thinking about what's really driving the health and development of these children, uh, these poor children from East Baltimore. And then I thought about what Dr. Dworkin had mentioned in one of these lectures about child health and development, um, thinking about asking a general question, do you have any, uh, to the parent, do you have any questions or concerns about your child's behavior and development? And thinking, could we parlay that into social needs and social, social determinants? Uh, so I quickly emailed Dr. Dorgan, um, and he replied back within a couple hours, obviously, because he had nothing better to do as a chairman and, you know, running around. Uh, and he gave me some great advice about it, and that's how this whole thing started. So the roots of what I'm talking about really are from CCMC. Uh, so the goal of this project was to increase identification and referrals of family psychosocial needs of wild child care visits. 
at this time, I didn't even know what social determinants was, to be honest. And uh, the, prior, the prior literature was really focused on family psychosocial needs from Kathy Kemper and, uh, and uh, others. And so our rationale was that research uh, to date had focused on interventions targeting one specific family or parent problem, such as depression or smoking or intimate partner violence, but that many low-income families face more than just one problem. And so to date, there had been no interventional research addressing multiple family psychosocial problems or social determinants at one time. So we decided to focus on the Well Child Care visit. This visit's focused exclusively on health promotion and disease prevention. It's family-driven, so it's really geared towards addressing parents and child concerns. Agenda should be based on their agenda, not our agenda. Surveillance and screening for child behavior and development problems is standard of care. Uh, and thanks to Dr. Warkin, he's the one who brought the concept of surveillance to the U.S. and now it's become standard of care. Uh, Intimate guidance, so talking to parents about what to anticipate, but counseling is part of what we're supposed to be doing. And also, it's a great opportunity for us to work on these issues of social needs in the early childhood when there's 10 well child care visits in the first two years of life. Um, and some suggest that poverty's impact on child uh, health and development is really the most powerful during that early child early uh, time period. And so this is the acronym uh, we came up with um, uh, for the We Care Project. And we conducted a randomized controlled trial down there in the Harriet Lane Clinic, which is a medical home for low-income children. It's a primary site for Hopkins Residence Continuity Clinics. It's really a resident-run clinic. Uh, we randomized the, uh, the unit uh, was continuity clinic session. So half the continuity clinics were randomized to the control group half were randomized to the We Care Intervention Group. And the We Care Intervention consisted of three components. The first component was the We Care Survey, which we developed. This was a self-administered questionnaire, which parents completed prior to the visit, and it screened for 10 family psychosocial problems. And these were the 10 issues. So we identified these issues from the literature, looking at literature, seeing what of these issues affected child health and development. We also talked to um, stakeholders in our clinic, uh, social workers, medical legal partnership, um, other attendings, to see what kind of resonated for the patient population that we were taking care of. Uh, and then we also tried to identify other resources for these. So these were the 10 that we decided to screen for. And it was written really by self-report, again, relying on what Dr. Dorkin taught me about trusting families' perception and understanding of child development and trying to parlay that to social needs. So for each topic, two questions were used to screen for a problem and identify motivation to address it. So for unemployment, the question was, do you have a job? Yes, no. And if no, do you want help? Yes, no, maybe later. It was written at the third grade level. To assess face validity, we had two parent-focused groups who reviewed the questions and made some edits. To make sure there was some content validity, we had faculty members review it as well. And then we had uh, to test reliability. So to make sure that the question that, that people responded accurately on multiple times, we conducted um, a two-week test-retest. We gave the survey again two weeks later, and we found that reliability, reliability to be high. So the second component was a family resource book. So I think you know, making screening questions are pretty easy to do after a while. But you know, really making sure that there are resources that are out there in the community that we can actually link families to was really much more daunting for me. Uh, so this resource book contained one-page tear-out information sheets for each family psychosocial problem. And on it, it listed between two to four community resources. And we made this resource book available in each of the continuity exam rooms. And this is the format of what it looked like. It listed the program name and you know, description. 
uh, and contact information. And all these resources were free of charge. So even though there was a cost for GED here, um, the, when we called them, they said the fee would be waived for any family or any parent who couldn't afford it. And the third component was resident training. So basically, we conducted a teaching session to residents one week prior to the study. We introduced a week care survey and family resource book. We instructed um, the residents to make a referral of a parent indicated they wanted help. So basically, we said, you'll get a survey sometimes at your visit. Look at the right-hand column for any yeses. If there's a yes, that means that there's a need and the family wants to get help. And then look at the resource book. And if it, they want help for employment, click the tab to um, employment, rip out a piece of paper, and give it to the family. So that took about 10 minutes, but we kind of embellished it to like 20 minutes. Um, and we conducted a booster session one month later to uh, remind the residents about this. And so looking at our results, we found that the discussion topics increased a little bit. So um, this is by the report of the parents from about two-ish to three-ish. Uh, and the referrals increased remarkably. So about 12% of uh, families in the control group received a referral compared to uh, over 50% in the intervention group. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, was that most families who got an intervention, got a uh, referral, received more than just one referral because these needs are so common, so prevalent. The most common referral type was for job training, followed by GD classes and smoke cessation classes, housing and food. When we called them one month later, uh, overall 20% of families uh, in the intervention group reported uh, contacting a resource uh, compared to just 2% in the control group. Uh, when we looked at residents' attitudes, none of the residents felt uncomfortable with parents handing them the WeCare survey, and the majority reported the intervention did not slow down the visit. So from the study, we concluded that the WeCare intervention increased the discussion and referral of family psychosocial problems at low-income children's well-child care visits. So I'm going to quickly just talk about our next study that we did. This is why I moved back to Boston. So we identified that this We Care model can increase uh, discussion of these topics, increase referrals, uh, increase contact, but we wanted to know whether it actually increased parental receipt of resources. Does it really connect families to resources? So we conducted a cluster randomized control trial. We had eight health centers in Boston who participated, four randomized to the control group and four randomized to the We Care group. Participants uh, were moms and infants between the age of birth and six months who presented for well-child well care visits. We really wanted to focus on the early childhood time period. Our primary outcome was enrollment in new community-based resources. Uh, we assessed this by maternal self-report uh, using a follow-up questionnaire. And then for a small subset, we confirmed receipt from getting data from the community agencies, which uh, the parents had consented to. Our secondary outcomes were referrals received on the index while childcare visits, as well as assessing the prevalence of basic needs using validated scales, such as the food and security scale, and questions from the Children's Health Watch survey. The intervention was pretty much very similar to um, what we had done uh, in our fellowship project. It was a We Care survey, uh, which we completed, had parents complete part of the while childcare visits. Again, it was self-report. Because of this grant, we actually decided to focus on just six basic needs instead of uh, the original 10. We focused on childcare, education, employment, food security. Uh, because we moved to Boston, we focused on household heat and housing. Um, the second component was still the family resource book, so we identified resources in Boston 
and we put them in a family resource book that we kept in each exam room in all the um, health centers. The third uh, component was provider training. So we conducted a brief training session prior to the study. At that time, we introduced a We Care survey and family resource book. And again, we instructed uh, providers to make a referral if a mom wanted help. And then the, the, the last component, which was different from our previous study, was that after the visit, if there's a screen positive, we have the research staff uh, provide applications to the resources for referred moms in the waiting room. Uh, our research staff then called um, moms a month later to assess whether there was contact resources, and they put that information into the child's electronic medical record. And control conditions were the standard of care. So overall, when we looked at um, using validated uh, uh, screen tools uh, at the prevalence of unmet basic needs at baseline, the majority of moms had at least one need, two-thirds had two needs, and almost 40% had three or more needs. When we looked at referrals, so 7% in the control group received a referral at that index visit compared to 70% in the WeCare uh, group. Uh, if you look at the type of referrals for the WeCare group, um, it ranged between 12% of a low for GED programs to a high of 46% for childcare. And for the control group, it ranged between 1% to 6%. When we looked at follow-up and looked at enrollment and resources, 39% of We Care mothers enrolled in a new resource compared to 24% in the control group. When we, after adjusting for covariates, we found that um, We Care moms had a 1.6 greater odds of enrolling in, in a new resource compared to control moms. We Care moms had greater odds of receiving childcare greater odds of being employed or uh, being in job training program, greater odds of receiving fuel assistance, and actually lower odds of being in a homeless shelter. And another way to kind of look at the impact of this is um, looking at the number needed to treat. So uh, with our results, what it suggests is that we care resulted in a mom receiving a referral to a community-based resource 1.6 times. So, uh, you have to see almost a little less than two moms for that intervention to get a referral, and almost seven moms for we care to result in uh, enrolling in a community-based resource. So it's actually become now uh, the current standard of care at BMC Pediatrics. So um, we screen for the same six needs. The front desk will provide the screen tool at all uh, to all patients uh, uh, for wall chocolate visits, uh, non-adolescent patients. Um, the practice system will review the patient's survey responses. They'll enter the results in the WeCare uh, flow sheet section, which was created in Epic. And the provider are trained and get incentives with MOC credit to review the screener and print out the resource information sheets in the after visit summary or communication letter. And we've done this as a QI project. It's really um, uh, students uh, who have kind of partnered with me, who've kind of led, led this in our clinic. Uh, the blue line kind of shows the uh, percent of positive screens for unmet basic needs, and you can see on, on a weekly basis, it's between 50 to 75%. The orange line is how often providers gave uh, information sheets uh, for screen positives, and uh, that's been hovering at 25 to 50%, so we still have some room to improve there. Uh, and so at our institution, which is a safety net hospital, um, there's been a lot of momentum now to think about universal screening uh, beyond pediatrics across all specialties. 
So this was a pilot done in internal medicine, uh, which found that about 43% of, um, of their patients screened positive for at least three needs. Uh, we replaced childcare with affordable medications and uh, transportation to make it uh, tailored to the needs of their patient population. And so I'm gonna briefly talk about the future of addressing social determinants of health. And I'd say, you know, it's been really gratifying to see over the past couple of years, the attention that it's uh, garnered in our community. Uh, but for me, I think I'm getting more questions than answers as I think more and more about this. I kind of jokingly say this is kind of like my, my midlife crisis trying to think about this. So I haven't um, bought a fancy car or anything, so that's good. So this is a, probably a doable midlife crisis to deal with. Um, so, you know, for me, the questions kind of arise, who should screen? Should it be the doctor? Should it be a medical assistant? Should it be some other staff personnel? What social terms of health should you screen for? There's a lot of unmet basic needs there. What should you go for? What type of screen questions should you use? There's a lot that are out there. Should it be based on self-report? Should it be used on these validated scales to measure something? Where should these questions be embedded? Should it be in the EMR? Should it be in a pre-visit questionnaire, paper, pencil? Or should we just kind of do it the way we've traditionally done it, by talking to families and patients? How often should you screen? Should it be done at every well childcare visit? Well, there's 10 visits in the first years of life, which is fine, but maybe they'll be overburdened from that. But subsequently, if you only do it once a year, you might be missing these needs because these needs change pretty frequently for families that we take care of. What do you do with the answers, right? So you just give a piece of paper, which is fine, but can we build on that? But we can't really refer everyone to one person in our clinic. And then how do you define success? Is it increased identification of needs? Is it increased referrals? Is it uh, increased connectivity resources? Is it increased child health outcomes, developmental outcomes? Is it increased um, uh, or reduced cost actually instead? So how do you define it? Define it? <clears throat> and then we've been thinking about, uh, Dr. Organ, I've been thinking about, you know, the inherent fallibility of a validated social determinants health screen tool. So I'm going to walk us through quickly through this exercise. So a great screen tool has about 80% sensitivity and specificity. So that means about one in five times, 20% times, you get a false negative and false positive. And really what clinicians care about is a positive predictive value. If you get a screen positive, how often is that really positive? And that's related to the prevalence of a condition. So the more prevalent condition, the higher automatically the positive predictive value. So this is the data that we had from our um, study in the community health centers. So in our patient populations, so the majority were unemployed, one in five were food insecure, less than 10% lacked heat. And so looking at that, the positive predictive value of the screen tool for unemployment was 84%, which is pretty good, but one in five times you'd be wrong. For food insecurity, it's only 50%, so every time you get a uh, positive screen for food insecurity, about half the time it's wrong. <coughs> and for lacking heat, it's actually less than a third of the time it's correct. This is a busy slide I'm gonna go through, but basically the gist is if you increase the sensitivity and specificity, for needs that are not the most prevalent, but still prevalent, 15 to 25%, you're still gonna see a lot of false um, positives. And then one study from Clem Patino at Children's uh, found that 31% of uh, families screened positive for food insecurity, 31% uh, requested food assistance, but there's only 36% overlap between the two. So um, 
So what do you do? Do you help the families who screen positive food insecurity but don't want help, or the ones who, who identify help but don't are 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 negative for food security on the screening tool? So it gets a little more complex. And so this is um, a commentary that Dr. Dorkin and I wrote uh, last year that um, you know kind of suggests some guiding principles for screening. We want to ensure that screening is family centered. We want to make sure uh, to integrate screening with the referrals and linkage to community-based resources. It has to involve shared decision-making. We can't just be telling families, this is what you need to do. It has to involve them. We should use a strength-based approach, so not only focus on the deficits and the needs that they have, but also the strengths that each family brings to, um, to the encounter. Uh, and we shouldn't limit screening practices just based on the parent's social status. So we can't do one thing for Medicaid patients and one thing for, for patients on, pri on uh, private insurance. Uh, we've thought about, or I've thought a lot because of Dr. Dorkin, about uh, screening the context of surveillance um, uh, and to really use the knowledge that we have of our families to inform the plans that we develop for referrals and care. And maybe we've got to think of ways to think about beyond just screening for social determinants. Maybe we should just screen for help. Just ask families, do you want help for these needs? Maybe the needs are just so prevalent and the patients we take care of, we don't even screen, we just give information sheets for all these resources and say this is kind of universally what we do for all families because we know these needs are so prevalent. And that can start the conversation uh, with our patients. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people think about uh, saying, you know, you need to screen for housing, you need to screen for food because that increases your risk for, uh, you know, bad child health and development uh, outcomes. So, you know, screen for housing, screen for quality childcare, safety and violence education, transportation, food security, unemployment, but in the end it's really poverty. So, you know, my take is that we should be screening, assisting families who want to get help for the needs that they have, and by doing so, we're going to partner with them, and we have a higher success of actually making an improvement, and in, in so doing, getting their um, trust to try to address other social determinants down the road. Um, so I'm going to keep you guys over a couple of minutes, I apologize. But this is one of my favorite quotes is, um, you know, we can't just ask doctors to do more and more things. And so this is from the Institute of Medicine Crossing the Quality Chasm. And their quote was that higher levels of quality cannot be achieved by further stressing current systems of care. Members of the healthcare workforce are already trying hard to do their jobs well. Trying hard will not work. Changing systems of care will. And this is just one model, so you know, I think about we can e-prescribe in Boston almost any medication to any pharmacy, so it wouldn't be amazing if we can actually e-refer uh, these needs to community agencies um, through a common platform. And then we also be mindful that we can only control so much in the medical sphere here, right? And so um, the resources rely on the accessibility resources as well as the quality resources, and we need to really think about that as we move forward. And so, you know, I've talked a lot about the medical home, um, addressing social terms in the medical home, and um, ways to do so. And I would suggest that, and this is one of the papers that uh, Dr. Org and I um, first wrote, was to really create a healthy neighborhood, to be not working in silos, but working with community agencies, working with uh, childcare and schools to really, really promote the health of our uh, children and uh, their families. And um, a couple more slides, but I'll say that, you know, Field Pediatrics has always been a leader in this. We've always understood the vulnerability of children to adverse social determinants. Um, uh, we've developed many outside-the-box primary care interventions, such as Reach on Read, Health Leads, many of which I'm proud of um, have been developed at my home institution. Uh, so as I reflect back on my path here, um, 
I also want to uh, mention my, uh, the impact social terms have had on my family's path. Um, so, you know, my dad grew up uh, uh, in India in the 1930s, 40s, um, uh, pretty poor. Um, uh, they had a house, but uh, uh, his parents were often, uh, didn't complete high school. His dad was often unemployed. They lived, uh, in, he shared one room with like six other kids. They, they had about one meal a day um, as a, um, growing up. Um, uh, but he, you know, went to college, he got a doctorate, he supported my mom to get a doctorate, um, and they immigrated here to Boston, um, and he'd often joke, he, he would say he went to the worst university in India, but then he worked at Harvard for like 40 years. Um, so, um, so I think about that, and I think about just one generation, how it, how it changed. These are pictures of my kids uh, going to, to seeing his house uh, last year. Um, but the, the fortunes of our family changed just by education uh, within one generation. So with that, I just want to thank everyone here. Um, <clears throat> thank all the mentors I've had. I do have to do one quick shout out to, um, um, it's not really a shout out, but one thing I want to attribute to is um, someone who's no longer here, Dr. Nancy Law, who was my um, uh, clinic preceptor, who had just so much compassion and empathy for children. Um, which I think about a lot. She tragically died uh, a year after I, I finished residency. So with that, I just want to thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dworkin, for letting me be here and it's been a privilege.